Hello, everybody. So this is the only host today, Alan Wyma for Elixir Mix. And today we have a, as we always have a special guest. This one is even more special, Richard Taylor. He is a Elixir Phoenix developer. And he worked on this article that we mentioned recently. We were just catching up before we started to record. Mersk, I think it's called. And uh, we mentioned your article before. And I was confused because I thought we, we had you on, but we just mentioned your article. But now we have the original author on. So why don't you go ahead and say hello and maybe do a quick intro about yourself, Richard? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. I'm Richard. I've been working as a software engineer for the past 25 years. Worked with a lot of different languages, but my main journey has been quite a common one, I think. So I went from Java to Ruby to Elixir. Um, and I've been doing Elixir for the best part of the last five years. Going from Java to Ruby, I mean, that must have been an interesting change. I mean, something that's that kind of classic OOP to really an OOP language, I think, after that. Because Ruby, everything is a object, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think it was quite a common move, though, at the time. I think uh, a lot of a lot of Java developers were a bit jaded. And when Ruby came along and the promise of de developer productivity, I think uh, it was quite a common move for a lot of people to do. So I was, I was mainly doing Java in like enterprise corporate environments and the first time I started to do Ruby was for a startup. So it was kind of a, a huge shift for me to go from lots of red tape and slow development processes to the speed and productivity of Ruby. It was a really good move. Yeah, and with the way Java kind of runs, I think you also are kind of used to being told how to lay out your files too, right? You have to lay out packages, all these folders, folder, folder, folder with nothing inside but one folder all the way down to one file, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and reams of XML as well. It was nice to leave that behind. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I started doing Rails, I think, when it was 2.1 or something. It's been a long time ago. And I don't know, has there ever been? I mean, you could always generate XML, but there was never any XML configuration before. I think it was just YAML only, right? Yeah, I think so. I think it, it kind of popularized YAML a bit as well, didn't it, at the time? Yeah. And then, so you said you went from Java to Ruby. Was it Ruby to, what was the next one? Was it uh, Elixir or no? Elixir, yeah, yeah. yeah. So about probably just, just less than five years ago, I was kind of dabbling with Elixir on some side projects and then managed to get a job where um, it was full-time Elixir, which was which was great. Basically accelerated my uh, my knowledge of Elixir and Phoenix from there. Yeah, I'm kind of curious about like, how did you first hear about Elixir to begin with? Oh, that's a good question. I can't can't recall any specific instance. Again, I think it was again quite popularized in the Ruby community. I think so. A lot of a lot of Rubyists were were chattering about Elixir, obviously because of uh, Jose's background with with Ruby. And so it was all the promises of performance and low memory footprint and things like that. The stuff that you kind of the problems that you kind of hit with Ruby sometimes at scale. And so, yeah, I, I kind of dabbled with it and I, I wanted to build a couple of small projects on the side. But it wasn't until I got a full-time job doing it that it, it kind of really hit home um, how productive it can be as well. Uh, I mean, that's kind of a good question, right? Were you starting to hit, I mean, at the beginning, you had the productivity of, I'm talking about Ruby, right? You had the productivity of kind of a language that just kind of read, at least to me, it kind of reads like you're writing English. And then, you know, you start hitting some weird issues, right? The scaling issues. Is that kind of what you're running into? Yeah, I don't think I ever really hit much that you couldn't you couldn't work around, but you had to throw memory at it basically. So you know, it, it would use a lot of memory, and like going from Ruby to Elixir, it was just notice really noticeable that you could run it on a two hundred and fifty six megabyte of RAM virtual server, and there's like there's no way you could run a, like a, a proper full full blown Ruby on Rails app with that. So, so yeah, it was just a, a huge difference in the the like. 
a lot less resources needed. But I don't think it ever really hit anything with Ruby that you couldn't work around. You could just chuck more resources at it and, and it would kind of work. Now, what about, I mean, the reason I'm asking, did you actually start to, did you ever deploy with Capistrano? I did, yeah, yeah, way back in the day. Yeah, I used to use it quite a lot, actually. But one of the one of the downsides that kind of MRSK, which we'll get into, kind of helps out with is that with Capistrano, you kind of have to set the server up ready to run everything before you can kind of deploy your app to it. So there's there was that whole bootstrapping process for the actual virtual server as well. You'd have to install all your software, compile all the dependencies, that kind of thing. But yeah, well, I guess we'll get into that with uh, MRSK. Yeah, I think at the beginning when you first started using Capistrano, it was like that you had to kind of get everything ready. And I think later on, they started adding more flexibility. And now you can use Capistrano for like anything. Okay. Um, yeah, that's what my interpretation is. Actually, I had a project a couple of years ago, which was a PHP app that was actually using Capistrano to deploy, which would be weird if you looked at it, if you looked at Capistrano many years ago and looked at what it is now in terms of what you would do with it, right? Because I think it was strictly Rails application deployment at the time when it first came out. First yeah, yeah, definitely out. when it first came out. I think it, it, basically all it's ever really been is a command runner over SSH. So I guess it's always been capable of doing other things, but it was it was pretty much tied to Rails, I think, in the early days. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, obviously you know why I brought it up, because that to me that's kind of like the predecessor to what you're going to be talking about too. I mean, when you started deploying Phoenix applications, I mean, you don't have something like Capistrano. So how were you kind of doing your deployments then? So I've done it a few different ways. So I've done it just just to Heroku, where you basically uh, push the whole project as it is with Mix included. I've deployed to servers where I've built releases first and then kind of deployed the release. And obviously, I've used uh, Fly quite a lot as well, which basically you, you kind of have a Docker file, which builds the release and then you, you deploy the Docker container to production. Yeah, I remember the first time like when I started to deploy apps, I kept using Mix all the time because I felt like, I don't know, I just felt, I think this is before even, I don't know, do, do you know when uh, Distillery came out? I mean, it wasn't out from the beginning, right? It kind of came out later on. I think it was, yeah, I think it was around when I started doing Elixir. So I used Distillery quite a lot uh, to do releases before, I think it was Elixir 1.9, was it, that introduced the releases themselves. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I used Distillery to create releases. So I, I used to have like a build pipeline that built a release with Distillery, published it to GitHub, and then my deployment process would basically fetch the latest and build release from GitHub and, and then deploy that to the servers. I mean, because before before Distillery, I mean, I guess we had XRM or there was something like that, but I felt like there was no clear way how to actually create a release. Maybe maybe I missed it something. So that's why I was always like, oh, what do I do? And okay, I'll just run Mix. And then they said, well, you shouldn't be running Mix because so many reasons and you should be doing a release. But I don't think there was ever really a way to do it besides Distillery. Obviously, now things are different. But before Distillery, I mean, I, I don't really know what there was. Like I said, I think there was like a predecessor called XRM or, or, or something like that. I don't really know what the, the what it was like before. But I, I don't think I've seen any guides on how to deploy before Distillery. No, I think there, there was another one that was a bit like Capistrano as well, I think, for, for Elixir. That was oh, e-deliver, e, no, e right? Yeah, that's the one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that one, I mean, when I started using that one, that one also relied upon distillery too. Okay, but, right. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's what I leaned on later on was e-deliver. But then at that time, I only had one client with a VPS. It seems like everybody's kind of moved over to containers since then. Yeah, yeah, it's moved on a lot. I never used eDeliver, but I do remember it was quite confusing, I think, originally. I think, like you say, the lack of mix in a release is really confusing to, to developers when they're deploying to production with releases for the first time. So, yeah. Well, now I think it's much better, right? Because we also removed the mix.config, 
You just have config, right? Which makes it much more clear. And I think it's a little bit more flexible, especially with the runtime. Yeah, definitely. And uh, they've, they've kind of baked in the ability to to generate releases automatically as well. And it generates a Docker file and things like that with Phoenix now. So I think things oh, are, yeah. are a lot easier than they used to be. That's, yeah, that's been a lifesaver. I, I love that Docker command. Or the Docker, it's a flag. You actually have to add it in, right? So yeah. it, but otherwise, it's been a, it's been a lifesaver. And it's cool because it also reads like what version of Erlang you have, what version of Elixir you have, and it finds it. So it's it's like perfect. Yeah, very handy. Yeah, but now we have this this new tool, right? Maybe you can kind of give the intro about it because what I like about it the most is, I don't know, I just despise AWS because of how complicated it is and how annoyed I am at at, at the, the, the thing. But I mean, obviously, you should know the background about what, what basically happened from 37 signals, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, 37 signals have grown and they've they, they kind of chose to to blocks to the cloud originally, but they've seen over the years their cloud bills like escalating to to ridiculous levels, and they kind of decided right that, that that's enough. They're going to invest in servers like in in bare metal and deploy to that instead. And I guess because of that, they needed a tool to replace their current deployment tools that they were using, and decided to build the tool which is now MRSK uh, or Maersk. Yeah, I think it's a play on the uh, the container shipping company Maersk. I think that's where the name comes from. So yeah, yeah. So they they basically built out MRSK, and I I kind of I first found out about it through a GitHub notification, just saying a new release of something had been had been made, and I thought, oh, that looks interesting. This was before before the big announcement, and so I started dabbling with it then, just to kind of understand it. And uh, immediately, I thought, oh wow, okay. Uh, I wonder if we could use this for to deploy Elixir apps. And so that was kind of my first introduction to it. Yeah. So. Basically, in a nutshell, it, they, they kind of say it's like Capistrano for deploying containers. So the beauty of it is that um, you are just deploying Docker containers to a host. MRSK takes care of setting up the host. So you, to start with, you literally just need to boot a VPS somewhere or a server anywhere with an IP address and SSH installed. And uh, you stick the the IP address into MRSK and run deploy, and it basically will SSH in, check if Docker's installed, install it if it isn't. So it literally bootstraps everything from scratch for you, then builds your app, and then deploys it to the host. So for the actual like build process, you can build that on a ho- on a remote host as well. So you can kind of designate a host as your build server, and so it'll send your your Docker context up to the host, build your Docker container, then it pushes that to a, a registry somewhere. So you can use um, one of a, a number of registries. You can use Docker Hub or GitHub Zone kind of container registry. And then it kind of pulls that, that, that image down on your deployment hosts and then deploys that. And so you can actually run all that on the same host if you want. Like you can just have a single host that has all these different responsibilities, or you can you could basically say, "Oh, I want a dedicated beefy build server." And one of the benefits of that is that you get caching layers on the build server. So the next time you deploy, it doesn't have to rebuild everything from scratch. It just rebuilds the bits that changed. So yeah, it's very handy. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to kind of follow how this thing works because uh, I watched the video at a high level. It all made sense, but I was kind of curious about because okay, let, let me just kind of go back to your article maybe you can help kind of clear this stuff up so so for one thing you have to run on port 3000 this that's the default port right in your article you only say expose 3000 but i think you also have to change your oh no you can just set port right i think default there's a port but you don't do that in here maybe it's kind of at least i don't see a separate pulled out part yeah you're right so yeah so the mrsk basically defaults to port 3000 so in my Mm -hmm. article i just told the 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 app to also deploy to port three thousand. Okay, but you can override that. You can basically choose whichever port you want. 
And now do you have to deploy as root or can you just create a, a deployment user? You can deploy, uh, create a deployment user as well. Yeah, it doesn't have to okay. be. So, okay, so the init command will create all the stuff you need on your project. You have this config deploy file, and this is the one that, that's coming in after that, right? With the service hello and what image you have. So this, these, I mean, I see this style of the two kind of less than equal or less than greater than symbols. Now, is that actually what's there? Or is that going to like read from a config file and swap out for you? Because I see that used a, cu- a couple of times, like with, like with this I- rooted IP address for the builder. Oh, yeah. Those so, are just variables uh, and- that you change yourself, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's basically what you have to change in that config gotcha. file to fill it in with, with your thing. So your GitHub username or the IP addresses of the servers that you're deploying to. Now, this one I have a question about. this The password over here, right? You have a Merce registry password. Now, there's some kind of configuration file for this that has all the passwords in plain text or something? Or how do the passwords get passed around? Yeah, so uh, the way that it works is um, it'll read from a local M file but by default. So oh. you, you, have, you have your M file locally with all your secrets in it. I see. And then the config file itself doesn't need to have those. You just refer to the um, to the variable in your M file. Now, could you also just use environment variables yourself, or you have to use an M file? Uh, no, so you can just use them as well. So okay. um, I can't remember if there's an example there. Gotcha. But yeah. But can, the database URL is another one too, right? Because I see that they have this command, it's like Mersk, was it add accessory Postgres or something? It was a little bit, or yeah, Mersk accessory boot Postgres. So that's going to actually install Postgres and... Like, because I see over here, you had a config file with the Postgres password, Postgres DB. But so you have to already say which host you, which IP address you're going to host the DB server on, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you don't have to use the accessories that that is like an, an extra thing that they they mm. provide. But it kind of gives you, so you might want to have like four hosts for your web application, but you would only mm. want your database to run on one. So it allows you to have that separation. So in this example, I wanted to kind of deploy um, a fully blown Phoenix app. So I wanted to have a Postgres database so I can specify that. And again, you just specify the image and it will run on the same host as the, as the app. Okay. Now, the other thing I see over here too is that, and I'm happy you put it down over here because this hit me a couple of times, the the check origin, right? Oh, yeah. So how does that one work? Because usually, we're, like if we want to deploy this with the domain name, I mean, I guess you could just put the domain name on there. It's not going to be a big issue, but you're over here, you put the IP address. Yeah. Now, is there a way that you can configure that? Because you have just the one runtime EXS file, right? Is there a way you can just pull the, the IP address from the environment so that it's automatically set? Or because it wasn't so clear from here how this would work with just IP address if you have multiple hosts? Yeah, so I think in that in that part of the example, it is just all deploying to one host. So I just wanted to okay. make it, I wanted to basically have like a like a beginner's guide almost to deploy gotcha. the Phoenix app where okay. you've just deployed it, you've only got one server, you've got an IP address. So if you if you gotcha. put the check origin, then your live views will work um, nicely. All right, all right. Because I was thinking like, because you're, you're saying, because the article is all about multi-cloud deployment, but if you only have one IP address, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, it doesn't yeah. multi-cloud. but I guess it would work for multiple if you configured it properly. Yeah, um, so actually the, 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 the blog post kind of, I, I kind of started out by saying this is, you know, even though we're going to go multi-cloud, this, this first step is just single just host, single host. Okay. understand what MRSK does and all the rest of it. And then <laughs> the next section in the blog post actually goes about, um, you know, multi-cloud, multi-cloud. So different clouds and different hosts. And... Yeah, this is the interesting part is this thing called TailScale. I think they do talk about TailScale in the 20 minute article uh, video. Am I wrong? I thought he talked about something about the, like there's a VPN WireGuard or something happening. Maybe um, I, I was wrong. Yeah, I don't think so. So um, I, I don't remember seeing that. As, it's, it's basically nothing to do with MRSK. This is just Elixir. And the, basically, I kind of got to this point where 
I was deploying a Phoenix app and I thought, well, that's okay. You know, it's just as good as anything else you could basically deploy out there. You know, there's some conveniences, but I deploy some of my stuff to fly.io and I was thinking, well, you know, if how far could we get basically to the feature set that fly.io gives you? And so if you're deploying to multiple clouds or, or even just like different data centers for the same cloud, obviously with Elixir, you're going to want to cluster that at some point probably. And so I started looking around and trying to figure out, okay, if we were going to do that and provide this private network that of that's secure and allows you to cluster your nodes together like fly does basically then what could we use and so i've kind of dabbled a little bit with tail scale before so i kind of i kind of knew it would probably be possible but it took quite quite a bit of work actually i actually like wrote another blog post that was just dedicated to using tail scale with elixir because this this blog post was growing so big at, the, at that time i thought that would kind of be a, a good post in its own right just like how, how would you cluster nodes across a private network for Elixir applications. Well, maybe can you talk a little bit more about TailScale? Because I've actually never heard it before. Is it built on top of WireGuard, which is like a standard protocol for VPNs? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so WireGuard is is like a VPN technology. It's a lot easier to use than like OpenVPN and a lot of mm-hmm. the ones that, that a lot of its predecessors. And then TailScale basically sits on top of that and just makes it easier to manage. So you, okay. you kind of TailScale provide like a central hub where you can view all of the nodes that are connected and and like it'll automatically discover each other and, and add all of the nodes that connect to each other. So so basically you run TailScale on one machine, you run it on another machine, and then those two machines now have an IP address that they can talk to each other on that's that goes over the secure VPN basically. Well, I liked I liked the fact that you also I mean you have to have SSL running over here according here, and I like the fact that you tell people okay you have to add it to extra apps and also for the migration because that's that caught me for a while on a recent app like one of the hosts I think I, I run it on I forgot what it is one of the popular cloud providers and they they make you use SSL to Postgres which I'm not a I'm not a I, I don't mind. I like secure stuff, but it took me a while to figure out how to do the database migrations because SSL doesn't get started up in the default migration. Yeah, it's it's really annoying actually. Um, yeah. I've hit I've hit it a couple of times on different projects as well. I think we've done some stuff where we used SSL to connect to uh, RDS uh, Postgres. Yeah. And so the, in the, in this article, I basically use Crunchy Bridge, which is another Postgres provider, hosted okay. Postgres provider. And so, yeah, being able to connect to that, you need to connect over SSL, which, yeah, it's just... But one of the advantages of Crunchy Bridge is that they also give the option to connect to your Tailscale network, which is really cool. So so basically, you can put your Tailscale key in Crunchy Bridge. It will automatically connect to your Tailscale network then. So the, the, the app servers that are connected to Tailscale can talk to the database over over the private VPN as well, which is pretty cool. Now, Tailscale is is open source or is it a service you need to pay for? So it's a service you need to pay for, but they, they have a very generous free tier. I think you can connect okay. to like 100 servers for, for free. So yeah, I've not had to pay for it yet. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's cool because... I was always interested in doing that multi a multi cloud uh, deployment just because I don't know I always have issues with AWS and I'd rather have yeah another cloud provider just in case something happens. Yeah, so uh, again, one of the the benefits of uh, MRSK, one of the one of their kind of core uh, principles is that it is completely. Uh, cloud and or bare metal agnostic it, it doesn't like i say it, it just needs an ip address to ssh into and then it, it can run on that so you could you could literally build up your entire application stack in in something like digital ocean 
And then you could just boot a, a bunch of servers in AWS or in, in some other cloud provider in Linode or something, change your IP addresses and run deploy. And then basically you'd, you'd have moved clouds. You could like literally have your entire stack running in a different cloud somewhere, update your DNS and you're basically done. Yeah, I was looking for it because actually Maersk also relies, I mean, it's building upon a couple of different services put together. I think one was traffic. Is that right? So it can help to, because everything's running with Docker, right? It runs Docker locally and then it uses traffic to help like move the traffic from one container to the next. If I remember yeah, exactly. Right. So the the kind of IP address that you're hitting, the port you're hitting is traffic or traffic. And then it load balances over the actual application. So it allows it to do zero downtime deployments by booting up. It'll boot up your new Docker container. It runs some like health checks to make sure it's running. And then just tells traffic to switch over from uh, from the old version to the new version if uh, your health checks pass. So, so that's another thing you get, actually, which is quite hard to do on your own if you're just deploying to your own server is getting zero downtime deployments, which is quite nice. So you got traffic or traffic Docker, and I think it's just like straight bash command or something. I don't know. Is there anything else that's part of the stack that comes from Maersk? Uh, no, that's it, literally. And then um, Maersk kind of has loads of commands that you can run as well to like access all the log files from all of the Docker containers from your local machine, which is quite nice. So you can you can stream all of the logs back to your development machine, which is which is quite quite handy. Now, if there's if there's a way that you can easily like what do you call that like remotely connect to your machines in terms of like I mean not just SSH, but I mean with what do you call that the observer, right? That'd be really nice. I guess there must be a way to do something like that, right? Yeah, you can because it's all like if you set it up as a cluster, it's easy to do because Mm -hmm. you can get your local development machine to also connect to the same tail scale cluster. Mm-hmm. And then you can just like um, automatically connect to the same cluster from your from your development machine if you want your Elixir cluster. Which oh is yeah, really that's handy. true. Yeah, yeah they, they might be useful. <laughs> they might be yeah. useful. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, going on to your article, I mean, it's cool. So you have to add Tailscale to your Docker file in order to to use it. Yeah, exactly. So basically, you want the you want each each node of your app to 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 connect to Tailscale. So not like the host that's running it. You kind of want your app itself to be able to connect to it. And so when you when you connect your node to Tailscale, you kind of give it a name. And in the Tailscale dashboard, each of those names is then shown uniquely. So it'll say like host one, host two, host three, even if you connect it as host to each of them. And so I was sitting there trying to figure out, well, if I want these the, all of these different nodes that are connected to Tailscale to cluster together, how is it going to know which of those nodes on, on the Tailscale cluster it should cluster together? Because if you were deploying a new version, you wouldn't want that new version to connect to the same cluster as the previous version because your code might have changed and, and you know it might break. And so I was playing with the, the Tailscale API and I figured that in the actual API, it tells you what the node name was that you tried to connect with. So using the API, I created libcluster tailscale, which is like a, a libcluster strategy for Elixir. And so what that does is it calls the, it knows like what the, ver- what the name of the application and the version that's currently running. And then it uses the Tailscale API to go and find out any other hosts in that cluster with the same name and version. And then it automatically clusters them together. So you could you can boot up another server and it'll automatically discover it and connect to it within the cluster, which is quite cool. Now you said based on the version, right? You're talking about within the mix file, right? So no, so uh, MRSK basically has, um, well, actually I had to add support for this in MRSK. So when 
when MRSK deploys your app, it gives it like a brand, a, a unique version that uses, I think, uses the Git chart to try and figure out um, what version of your app is currently running. And so that's how it, it kind of uh, makes sure that it knows which version is currently running, which version is going to be the new version, and then switches them over. And so I added an upstream thing to MRSK that adds an environment variable when booting your container so that you can read inside the container to find out what that unique version of that app that you're currently running is. And then I use that to connect to, uh, to basically connect to Tailscale. So when we use the API, we can actually find all of the versions of this app that are currently running on Tailscale and, and just make sure all those are connected together. Okay. Yeah, that's ext- obviously extremely useful. Okay. And it seems like that's just a straight, uh, like a binary that gets run and then gets in the lib cluster knows where that is and could just call that binary file to help communicate, right? That's what it looks like over here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the tailscale D is a binary which which will connect to your own, tail. I think they call it a tail net, which is like your own private network. And then libcluster tailscale is a, a libcluster strategy which starts up in your, inside your Elixir app. And then it uses the tailscale API to discover um, all nodes with the same version of the app that are running. And then basically it clusters them together. Okay. And then you have a, a script file that you include that includes the health check and also just running tail scale. Yeah, so the health check stuff is, again, it's all MRSK stuff. So when, when you do a new deployment, MRSK boots up your Docker image after it's built it. And then it does like a HTTP check to make sure that the app is responding. And then if it is, it tears it down and then it basically boots up the, the production version of that and then switches the traffic over. So in the script here, in the um, blog post, basically I'm checking to see if it is the health check container because when it boots this temporary health check container up, I don't want that to connect to the Tailscale network mm-hmm. because I don't want it to join basically with anybody else. And there, there will be nothing else for it to join with. So it's, it's basically a waste of time. So in, in those scripts, it's literally just saying, do this stuff if it isn't the health check container. So it just checks to see that it isn't the health check because the, the MRSK container name contains the word health check on your health check containers when it's gotcha. starting out. So you can kind of Okay, just, I see. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen EEX. I'm so used to seeing Heeks all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, but and then for the health check one, can you actually define an endpoint to, for the health check or does it always go for like the, the root pass? Oh, yeah. So you can, so in the MRSK config, basically the, there is a health check there and I'm, I've got just the path as slash at the moment, but you can you can change the path to whatever you want. And I think there might be some other options in there as well for the for different types of health check that you want to do. Okay. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah. The, the hardest part of the, all of it was literally trying to figure out how to get, get the cluster working because I kind of deployed it and thought, well, it's not it's not very exciting if you can't actually cluster these nodes together. So vast majority of the time, actually, I spent figuring out um, Tailscale. I had loads of issues getting Tailscale running inside the Docker container. Uh, I had to provide some upstream fixes to MRSK to allow some extra flags so that we could get that working as well. So yeah, it was it was quite a lot of work, and then trying to figure out how to uh, auto discover them and things like that. Well, at one point I thought oh, it's probably not going to be possible, but thankfully over the uh, Tailscale API it was possible to uh, to kind of determine that as well. I'm having just a little bit of uh, difficulty to understand. So you have what I see is you have two Bash scripts in here. You have a env.sh, and you also have just the 
what is this other one? This is the server one, right? So that means you you always like source the Envita SH and then you're going to run the start server. Is that how this works? Yeah, so the env.sh is part of the releases. It's part of the um, Elixir releases. And so that is something that gets invoked when your release starts by Elixir. Okay. And so inside there, it's got basically the release name, uh, the release node and the release distribution. And so those are oh, okay. those are pretty standard like cluster clustering environment variables that you need to use when, whenever you're clustering. So they get added in when you've deployed to fly, for example, as well. And so inside there, what we needed to do is to make sure that the node name uh, in the cluster contains the IP address that that, that um, node has in TailScale. So otherwise, they wouldn't be able to talk to each other. So this script basically just gets the tailscale IP address that that machine currently has, that node currently has, and then uses that um, IP address as the the node name when starting the the Erlang cluster. And so then all of those nodes uh, can talk to each other because they're they're all on the same private network and they've all they mm-hmm. they can all see each other on their their tailscale IP addresses. And so the the second one. The second script is this one is the script that starts the server. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, sorry. This is the one I think that starts the when the container's booted, it starts the server. And so in this one, basically, it just says that if if it's not the health check and it is it is like supposed to be started, make sure that Tailscale starts first. So it boots Tailscale and then it starts the Phoenix, the Phoenix application. Wait, this tailscale IP hyphen hyphen four yeah. for the yeah. the SH file. Yeah, so that is the, the IP four address. So I think you get an okay. IP six address as well um, from Tailscale. Okay. Gotcha. Now I got it now. Okay. So you have to boot and then and then going back to the start, right? The start server, you have to boot up Tailscale D and then use Tailscale up. So I guess it's gonna talk back to the daemon, right? And say, okay, do this. It seems a little bit weird to have two <laughs> two two binaries, but okay. Yeah, so TailScale-D is like the the networking stack. So mm-hmm. it, it basically runs everything. And then TailScale-Up is just that node connecting to the TailScale network. Okay. And so when when you do TailScale-Up, you have to pass in an auth key. And so it, it then knows that it's connecting to your tailnet because that, that, that auth key basically defines mm-hmm. which, which tailnet it's connecting to. You know, I never look at this stuff since I have that like command to generate the Docker stuff. So <laughs> I just learned a lot today just from this. I'm like, what is this? Where the heck is this coming from? And then just looking at it as you were talking, oh, okay, I didn't know I could do this. Mm. So yeah, a lot of this stuff kind of gets generated automatically by the Fly when when you're deploying to Fly as well. If you like use their generator to generate um, the yeah. config, um, a lot of this gets stuff gets added automatically. So I was using that quite a lot as a as a resource to try and figure out some of this stuff. Okay, yeah, I mean this is really nice. So there's quite a lot in there, but I think it's one of those that yeah. once once you've got it set up and you've deployed it. Um, then you'll probably never, you'd pretty much never have to touch it again. And, you know, uh, <laughs> in the back of my mind, when I, was, when I was kind of going down this rabbit hole, it was, I was thinking to myself, well, why wouldn't I just deploy supply? You know, it's a lot easier. You get the same mm-hmm. kind of thing. But one of the main reasons is that it's cloud agnostic. It allows you to kind of have the same feature set that you get there, but but not be tied into a single vendor. But the, this, what the Tailscale blog post got picked up on Hacker News and the first question someone asked was like, why, why wouldn't you just use Fly? <laughs> so, great. Well, I actually had not a very good experience with Fly. For the first time I used it, I haven't really tried it out again. 
But uh, yeah, I, I I mean, I can see how it is easy to use. Like the one thing I have found difficult is like it wasn't straightforward to create like another environment because of course you have your test environment, you have your production. So that wasn't so clear for me. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, other than that, like if you just have one environment, you just push, it just runs and everything's nice. But once <laughs> you start doing things, not once you start doing things besides just deploying, I think sometimes there could be some issues there, which is actually what I ran into. Yeah, so I've, I've used it quite a lot and I've, I've had issues and they've obviously had a fair few issues lately. They've mm-hmm. kind of built a new V2 stack, which they're migrating everybody over to now. And apparently that's that's a lot more stable than the original That's what they stack. said, yeah. But with multiple multiple environments, basically, when when your config file is generated, it kind of has the app name in it. But if you yeah. if you delete that from your config file, and then just provide it at the command line every time you deploy. You can do dash A and then the name of the app. Yeah. Um, then, you, then you can basically deploy to multiple environments then just by changing the name, which is quite easy. What I ran into before, and I think I mentioned it in the podcast, is like I transferred the app from my from my own personal to an org, okay. and then it broke. Yeah, and I, somebody today was was asking this question on on Reddit, and I tried to give like honest feedback, like, "Well, this happened to me, and I did this." And then somebody replied back saying, "Well, that's what happens when you when you're when you're too cheap." I was like, "What are you talking about?" Like, I literally ended up paying for the service. And then it took like three days for them to reply back over email for support. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know what you, well, how was that cheap? I, I paid 30 bucks. <laughs> what do you want from me? Yeah, no, it's not good. Yeah, like the, like the database became detached and I couldn't reattach it. And, and, I, and I, I tried a command I found and it didn't work because they want you to pay in order to make it work. I was like, that doesn't make sense. Why would you let me change orgs and then ask me to pay just to fix something? When, it, cause when you move the app, move the app along with the database. Why would I just want to move the app and not the database? It doesn't really <laughs> make sense. Anyways, I'm going off on a tangent, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it works pretty well. But when you start doing things not on just deployment, once you deploy it, then I think uh, it's not so clear. And it sounds like you had some issues yourself too. So there's no perfect service. No, no, exactly. You're right. Like nowhere is perfect, is it? But I guess if you're under your own control, it's the, the lack of control, isn't it? So if you're using a third party and, and it's broken and they won't respond, then there's nothing you can do about it. Whereas if you're if you're deploying yourself, you know, if you can't access your host or whatever, you can just boot up a new host and, and run deploy again and this will kind of fix itself. So it's quite nice. Well, I'm happy I had a, a patient client who understood. <laughs> a really um... good client as well. <laughs> But yeah, actually, the one thing I do have a question about is like, of course, there's different versions of Linux and everyone has their own package manager, right? So what I understand is that you're actually able to run Maersk on a brand new host, nothing installed. But how does it know how to add the things that you need? That part is still a little bit alluding to me. So the only thing it really needs is Docker. So once you so you have to install Docker before, then you can ready to go. And it will install Docker for you as well. Yeah, it it might actually okay. be it might have to be um, Ubuntu actually. I, I can't remember if they've got a restriction okay. on because that was the one thing in my head. It's like if you're using like SUSE over here and Ubuntu over there and Debian over there, can it actually figure out all this stuff? Yeah, I think it might. I think they may say that you have to use uh, Ubuntu, um, but if you run it on a on a clean host, it will um, literally download and install uh, Docker for you as well before starting up. Yeah, I'm just looking at it. says, uh, installation connects to the servers over SSH, installs Docker on any server that might be missing it using apt-git. So I think that counts for both Debian and Debian base, which would be Ubuntu. So that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, that was just the one thing because like that was my understanding is like you just have a brand new host, you run setup and it just does everything. And I'm like, well, how does it know 
how to install yeah. what it needs. Then it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. And so the the kind of final part of this whole thing was, as well was like the ability to deploy to different cloud providers at the same time, which was which was quite yeah. interesting. So you could you can have one host running on uh, Linode, one host running on DigitalOcean, both in different different continents if you want. And so yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't think of many real life use cases where you might want to do that, but it was it was still interesting to do. <laughs> well, I don't know much about traffic though, but I'm, now I'm thinking in my head, how would you handle this? Is does traffic also handle like SSA, or sorry, uh, SSL? I don't. I think you probably can get it to work with SSL, but I think in this setup, the the idea might be to run this behind Cloudflare or something like that. So your 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 app okay. actually or your SSL termination would happen at Cloudflare. At Cloudflare. So that's that's how they're. Is that how they recommend you do it? Is over Cloudflare? That is one of the examples they give. Yeah, but I think they say you know any any kind of front front end proxy would would be fine. But um, I think Cloudflare is one of the examples they give. Yeah, that's that's one. Let me take a look at that. That's the only thing I think it's missing, other than like if they have some. If there's, I mean, I think there is like S3 things that you can, you can run like through Docker. So that would be the only other thing I would think people really need. Yeah, yeah. You could. I kind of think you could probably set it up so that it does the SSL termination in Elixir as well. There's, I think. Oh Sasha, yeah, yeah, I forgot. Yeah. Urix got a, a library. I think yeah. that that does let's encrypt SSL certificates automatically. True. So I was thinking, yeah, if you if you if you just wanted like a one server setup with no fuss, then that's one way of going about it. Or if somehow you can point it to Nginx or something like that, and then that would traffic it around. But I think I think I'd probably just run it with. I think the the, the solution that you pose, I think, is probably a really good one. Yeah. The only other issue with that one is that you'd have to have the SSL certificate stored in a place that could be reused. You know what I'm saying? Because like, like that the key plus the um, all that stuff. I think, I, I don't know, I have to go back to see how it works for his thing. Because you wouldn't want to just keep, like, everyone keep retrying getting new keys, or does it make sense? I don't I don't know. I'm trying to think yeah. how, how that would actually work. I think it I think it stores the keys on the file system, so you can you can mount your host file system okay. to the Docker container. So as long as you're writing it to a specific path, I think um, it, would, it would store it and then reuse it. So could you actually tell Merce to upload files and then mount those? You can tell it to mount folders within the within the container, just like just like you okay. would with um, a, a volumes on Docker containers. Yeah. So in the in the post Postgres example, there it basically uses the host Ooh, yeah. file system to store the Postgres. So you can re- reboot the server, and your data will be preserved. Oh, duh! Yeah, <laughs> I <really laughs> need that. I almost forgot about that. Yeah, I think when I first set it up, I forgot about that too, and I was like, oh wait, okay. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Oh, over here. Yeah. Now I see the health check path. So yours was on the on the the, the root path. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. I think. I mean, did when you did you have some specific issues trying to get this going? Because obviously, there's some things that are not so clear at the beginning. Like you said, oh, I I didn't mount the path for the Postgres, right? I mean, was there other things that kind of caught you and you're like, oh, you know, this is not this wasn't clear, or you know, how did uh-huh. how did you get through it? Yeah, I think for the for the initial setup on on the single host, I think it was pretty straightforward. I don't think I hit too many things there. I think it was trying to make sure that the Postgres database had the right uh, username and password as the one that Elixir was expecting it, uh, Phoenix was expecting it to have, and the the data directory, making sure that that was mapped correctly. Most of the hard work and like the complicated stuff was was around the clustering side of it. That was definitely the. Uh, it took quite a lot of time to unpick all of that and gets the bottom of it. But as far as like just deploying to a single host, MRSK kind of just worked out the box, really. Yeah. And and I think I think the with you know the amount of time that Rails has been out and 
and those guys have been solving issues. Like that's the one thing I really miss and love about Elixir. And some of that rubbed off into the, sorry, Ruby community and rubbed off into Elixir is like kind of solving issues. And then people kind of either using that or looking to that and kind of copying or what's the word for that? Like not emulating, but it's like where you look at it and then you kind of do a similar thing that maybe works better for your community. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's something I, I love about Ruby. And then, like I said, Elixir is doing similar things. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so nice. And, you know, as soon as I saw that um, the 37 Signals or DHA specifically was working on something, I thought, you know, it must be it must be interesting to look at because, you know, they, he doesn't like put projects out for no reason. You know, if he's created something new, there's usually a good reason for it. And the fact that they've battle tested it like live, I think they've they've mi- nearly migrated all of their services over now to to uh, Biometal using MRSK to deploy it. So you know that it's probably um, pretty reliable as well. So Jeff Bezos must be pretty upset about this. <laughs> like a, I think they said they pay like a million bucks a month or something ridiculous. It was crazy. Yeah. The article yeah. is is I like his article because it's kind of like fact based, number based kind of thing. Like this is what we're paying and. And and you figure out the number. This doesn't make sense. And and it's like we have these even they're old servers, but they still work great. And we know our traffic is steadily growing at a certain pace. And it doesn't make sense for us to pay this bill because we already have like everything that we need. And and I like the fact that he kind of called BS on like a lot of these things. Like oh, move the cloud, you're going to save money. Okay, no, because here's the numbers. Okay, move the cloud, and you can save money by like not hiring more DevOps people. Uh, no, I think did they say they hired more? They never actually like lost anybody. Like in terms of like turning it down. I don't think they've ever turned it down. They no. may have actually had to add some people. I'm not too sure. So it's actually made things more complicated, if not the same, right? Yeah, exactly. I've seen a lot of companies that you get you get into the cloud when you're starting out and it's really cheap, right? And, yeah. and definitely attractive. But if you if you hit scale and, and you start growing, then basically your costs spiral so quickly. And most companies just can't be bothered with the cost of moving that. And, you know, you kind of tied in forever. You've got to work at a company that kind of really understands that, you know, your team can handle it. And you will, if you if you wanted to migrate to another cloud, you can do it. But yeah, I think it's very rare that that happens. I think. Well, the other thing I think is pretty interesting is like now each cloud is going to be different in pricing too. So it's not like, okay, just choose a cloud and you're, and you're, and you're good to go. Like, and you'd think that AWS is be cheaper. At least that's, that's what I think is in most people's minds. But I've had AWS contact me a couple of times and they're like, what are you paying for your hosting? And then like, we, I'm sure we can save you money if you switch over. And I sent them over my, my thing. I'm like, this is my stats, you know, like how many, how much RAM, et cetera. This is what I'm using. This is my, my price. And then they reply back, okay, well, oh, this is what, this is comparable. And then this is what you'd pay. And like, it was still like, like, because my hosting is like 40 or 50 US dollar a month. I don't have, like my clients have their own hosting I, and I just host like small stuff on my side. So 40, 50 is like nothing, right? But, and on the comparable stuff, they can't even match it. They were like another 20, $30 higher a month. I was like, well, and I went and I even replied back. I said, did you just say that you're actually more than what I'm paying right now? And then they didn't reply, they didn't reply back. <laughs> They're a little bit embarrassed. Yeah, that's been my experience as well, actually. Whenever there have been services that pop up that say, hey, we'll manage your AWS infrastructure for you and we'll, yeah. we'll make sure it's cheap and things like that. And then under the hood, you see that they're using Kubernetes and they're spinning up three like service clusters and things like that. Um, and you're, and that's just the bare minimum that you have to pay before you start uh, adding on uh, oh, yeah. all, 
all of your apps and things. And it's just always like ridiculously more than just pushing it to like Heroku or Fly or even your own like VPS. Just well, the, the crazy part is the calculator. It's like ridiculous. It's like I'm uh, calculating coordinates to, to send a missile somewhere. It's, it's <laughs> like nuts. All these different variables you got to punch in. Yeah, it's That's, all it's impossible, isn't it? Like you literally just have to boot it and and see how much they charge you. That's the only way of actually. Yeah, <laughs> well, we started turning on servers for one of my clients. They're going, they're they're closing down, and they're like, okay, can you turn off everything? And then like you have to wait a couple of days, or at least a day, and then you'll see what is your projected months end and what's next month's going to be based on current usage, right? Because you really can't tell. You have to look at the billing, whatever. In fact, it's crazy that they have a billing section in terms of like cost analysis. It's insane like yeah. that they built so much in just billing itself in terms of for- forecasting the amount you got to spend. I think until recently as well, I think their billing dashboard has got better. But it, it was the point where you couldn't really figure out how much you'd spent either. Like Even if you went into the billing dashboard, it was all segregated by region and things like that. And you oh, couldn't, like, yeah. Now, yeah, you had to switch regions to see what you're doing, right? Yeah, exactly. And then, and then actually, that's I remember this now because I remember like you have to check every region and see what the billing is because you may forget that somehow or somewhere you turned down a service by accident or whatever and then you're getting a bill and you're like what the heck is this i don't even have this thing running and you have to check all the environments or also all the regions nuts i think it's got a little bit better yeah it's better but still yeah it was it was a bit of a nightmare originally yeah sorry but going back to your article yeah really great article you hit a lot of points obviously not it's not going to include everything but includes all the major parts and i like the fact that you include the, the tail scale right is that how you say it yeah yeah cool that's Thanks. nice because that was always my question it's like how can i like have these things because I, I know it's been done i mean it's done all the time right this multi-cloud and how they connect and i'm happy that you have something here because i was never actually sure how the heck to do it it seems pretty straightforward with tail scale cool thanks yeah on the hacker news when it got, got posted on hacker news there were a, a few other alternatives as well that were posted on there like some open source alternatives to mm-hmm. uh, tail scale which is quite nice uh, it'd be an interesting uh, project to have a look at some of those as well and see if you can set up your own like tail scale cluster tail scale like cluster do you know the names of those in case people are interested in some of the more open source? Um, I can't remember them off the top of my head, but I'll, I can find the links and I can send them to you afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, other than that, I mean, I think that's the article itself is, is clear. I think we went pretty in depth. I don't really have any more questions other than, you know, just checking it out and trying it out myself. Uh, is there anything that we missed that we kind of need to go over? No, I think that was it. I think we yeah. talked like 10 times longer than the actual article, but there's because there's, <laughs> there's a lot in here in terms of like stuff behind what's happening right the story of why it's going on what's the background of you know of all the stuff and and how all the cloud is slowly eating us all monetarily <laughs> yeah it was uh, it took a long time to put together actually and and i yeah. i had to kind of uh, keep like cut some stuff out because um yeah it was just getting too long and like i said one whole section of it I, I deployed as a different blog post in the end because i thought um if i tried to just do all that in one it'd be just too much to, to take it so yeah thank you Okay. Yeah. I mean, with that, let's transition over to to picks. For me, I actually, I have uh, what I call like a non-pick. So I've been picking kind of games recently because I've been trying to relax at night and games do it for me. There's a, a game I played for a short while and then I shut it off and I uninstalled it immediately because I hated it. So it's kind of like a non-pick, basically. It's uh, Aliens, Colonial Marines. I don't know if you ever heard of that game or not. But yeah, it's basically kind of known to be a disaster and I thought it wouldn't be as bad as it was, but it was pretty bad. I'm not usually one to just turn off a game and just uninstall it immediately, but that was the first time. <laughs> cool. I'll stay clear of that. <laughs> yeah, stay clear of that one, please. Cool. Yeah, I had a, a game actually as well that I haven't actually played it yet, but it's been on my list of uh, games that I really want to play. It's called Lunark. 
L-U-N-A-R-K. It's basically a 2D platformer game uh, inspired by two of my favorite games from the 90s, one called Flashback and another called Another World. And so, yeah, it just it looks amazing. And I think it was a Kickstarter project. And so the, the, it's like an indie game dev and uh, it just looks really good. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to play that. Cool. That's the only one. I just want to make sure. I thought you said you had a couple. Oh, yeah. Sorry. That's the game. Yeah. So, uh, an app that I just started using this week called MimeStream, which is, which is new. It's basically a, a Mac OS email client. But specifically for Gmail, at uh, Gmail or Mail. So it uses the API, so you get quite a, a nice integration rather than just uh, um, over IMAP. And then another one, like this week, I was setting up a laptop and I discovered Homebrew Auto Update. And uh, I'm, I'm probably late to the party on that one, but it basically uh, does what it says. It, it updates your Homebrew dependencies uh, on a schedule automatically every 24 hours. So like, it saves me having to run the commands. So I definitely recommend that. <laughs> I don't know, I kind of enjoyed running like brew update and updated <laughs> and all that stuff. It's kind of become a habit now. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I do it as a habit as well, but just having it, it, it basically does it for you and then sends you a notification if uh, if it's updated anything. So it's quite nice. So you still you still get an idea of what, what it's done, but you don't have to do it yourself. Well, there's, I mean, you have to be careful too, because sometimes you update it and it's like actually broke stuff. Something that happened to me recently is I have basically one database server on DigitalOcean that runs you know, all the databases for my apps. I don't have that many things running on there. And I updated it to the recent version of Postgres. And did you know what Postgres did recently in terms of... So you know how you always have the public schema, right? So now the public schema by default is actually not writable or whatever you want to call it. You can't actually use it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So was it like, I I couldn't, like, I I created a brand new database and I wanted to go deploy an app. And I was like, what the heck? I'm like, I added SSL. (laughs) Like, what am I missing? (laughs) And I couldn't figure it out. And and I spent like an hour or so. And then I just sent an email over. And then they were like, oh, did you try this? And I was like, no, I tried all that. And then like, oh, here's a link. It looks like you, you're you using the latest version of Postgres. This is a new change. So it was quite a shocker. I was like, why in the heck did they do that? And they have a reason why they did it. Um, I won't go through it on here because I kind of forgot it. But uh, what I understand is, I think it's actually because um, my understanding from what I remember is that like when you put things into public schema, it'll put like they're accessible through all the different schemas. So they're trying to have like that stop. Oh, yeah. I haven't heard of that. Is this in Postgres 15 or something then? Yeah, the latest one, I think it's 15. So it's a good thing to know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) And so I'm also wondering, like, is it that now is it like, do we need to start setting this within like, you know, when you create a new Phoenix app, should we just automatically create a new schema now that matches your database name or something or what? Uh, Yeah, interesting. They haven't talked about it. So I'm kind of curious. Cool. Oh, yeah. I haven't heard anybody uh, hitting that yet, but it's it's good one to know about for when I do. Yeah, that's why I got shocked by this. Like, what the heck is that? Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it for my picks. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, and with that, I mean, thanks for coming on, and, and uh, I'm happy that you corrected me that you were not on the podcast before, uh, and you actually remembered exactly which episode we talked on about your article. So I guess that was a highlight <laughs> highlight in your life. But yeah, it was, again, uh, thanks for the article, and thanks for doing all the legwork for all the rest of us, so now I can just reap the rewards. No worries. Thank you for having me. <laughs>